0: What matters most in learning? The challenge? The thrill? The benefits? Interacting with other people? Or something else entirely? What is the connection between leading and learning? Does change drive learning? Or does learning drive change? What's more important? Teaching or learning? Is everyone a leader? A learner? A teacher? Want answers? listen in as we address these intriguing issues through commentary and with guests who share their thinking and tell us their stories lead learn change
1: i chose to make life better for myself it wasn't easy but it is possible so even though the level was pretty intense. The truth is, in many ways, you know, I, I never realized at that time really how poor we were. People would think because you don't talk well that you're dumb or you're stupid, you know, when you're not. But those struggles taught me persistence. It was hurtful at times, but my prior struggles made me made me say, that's your problem, not mine, and you can't define me. I didn't choose my location where I was born or my family, but I can choose my destiny from that point forward. Life is to be lived. We have a choice there. We either strive for the best or just get by. And so that's what it's about. Changing lives. You know, it's not about me. It's about uh, you know us living through others by giving of ourselves.
0: Today's guest on Lead, Learn, Change is Dr. Hayward Cordy. Hayward, thanks for taking your valuable time to speak with me today.
1: David, thanks for being being here as well. I've been excited about the invitation uh, for some time now and I'm happy to be with you today.
0: Well, I met Hayward Cordy because of my work with the Professional Association of Georgia Educators, Page. Before I met him, however, I heard his name often as he has served on our organization's board of directors and was viewed as someone who had a heart for students and teachers and whose observations, ideas, and commentary were grounded in wisdom and integrity. In 2018 to 2019, Hayward filled the role of page president. And while fulfilling those responsibilities, he also led the Oconee RISA, the regional educational service agency, one of 16 such groups in Georgia, where he still works today. I could read off a list of Hayward's accomplishments, recognitions, and official positions he has held during his career. However, what matters most is how Hayward has lived his life, the lessons he learned, and the example he set for countless others, whether he was serving as a teacher, superintendent, or principal. It's Hayward's heart that describes who he is. His story, some of which Hayward will share with us today, has been captured in a book he authored. That book is titled, Damaged Goods, Lessons Learned in Poverty, applied to life. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Hayward, let's start off by just telling the listeners about your childhood, and that could be your home, a number of siblings, making ends meet, some of those stories that you share every time you get to speak.
1: Well, I came from a very, very large family. Uh, There were nine boys and five girls in the house with mama and daddy Grandmama Carrie and great aunt Minnie, so from a very, very large household. We were sharecroppers, so we worked the fields for a share of the crops during that time period in rural Johnson County, Georgia. Uh, we were fairly impoverished, but had a house full of love and support. Uh, so even though the poverty level was pretty intense, the truth is, in many ways, you know, I. I never realized at that time really how poor we were uh, because we had family support and had that network there, you know, and we valued more than material things. And so my childhood was one with a whole uh, basketball team of brothers, you know, around and five sisters, you know, very large family. And David also at the time, uh, a house with just three bedrooms and no bathroom until I was about 15 years old, we got our first bathroom. So I, I was used to going to the outhouse as a bathroom and those things. And we couldn't afford uh, tissue. We, we would use old newspapers, uh, <laughs> the tissue growing up, you know, so uh, it was quite an experience during that time and in, uh, in era uh, growing up there in rural Whitesville, Georgia.
0: I was actually going to move into the newspaper toilet tissue comment because of the current situation we're dealing with where people are bemoaning the fact that they can't find toilet tissue at the store right now. And I was wondering as I reviewed your book this past week, you had these hygiene expectations growing up to stay clean despite the number of people in the house in the absence of a bathroom. So I'm thinking, wow, Hayward could teach some people some lessons about not spreading over the fact that you don't have all the toilet tissue you need right now. Talk about that hygiene situation a little bit more, because it's really interesting, and people can't really connect to that because they haven't experienced it.
1: No, and David, uh, for me, with my parents being from minority and poverty, we were taught, um, it was important. My mother always said, you can't help but being poor but you can hear from being from being nasty. And so my parents viewed hygiene as an, an important part of being who you were as a person. And growing up till I was about 14 years old, we didn't have a bathroom. But David, we bathed in number three big the big uh, wash tubs. In the summertime, we w- we would put water in the wash tub and let it sit outside at an angle and let sunlight heat up the uh, heat up the water. You know. Uh, to bathe in, and we will bathe at night, the whole household. And in the morning time, David, we would uh, wash off. You get a foot tub of water and you wash off and go to school or whatever, whatever else. But hygiene was uh, important uh, in, in that household because it was an important characteristic of being a person of quality and not one that just didn't care about uh, their appearance uh, to others. And David, and also with that, I mentioned the bathroom. You know, we couldn't afford uh shaman tissue to squeeze, but old newspapers, you know, we get those a those uh, uh, soft, and that was, you know, our our tissue. And it's all we have many, many years. And it's all that I knew, David. So I didn't feel uh like I was I was in dire straits because we were used to that to that tissue, you know, and it, it did its job, it did its job, you know. And so because Growing up in that environment, we learned very quickly that things, possessions, what you possess, what you acquire, don't make you somebody. That somebody was based upon number one, us being unique individuals, divine to create and that our worth came from us giving back, and bettering ourselves, and so that not having the tissue and not having the best clothes. I did a bit of matters for in my household.
0: Both of your parents were on board with raising all of you to instill some great values and some of the lessons that you just shared. You talk a lot about your dad and, and your mom in your book, but talk about your father for just a second because he has a very interesting background and he had, I think maybe you phrased it, hopes and dreams, but he had some real strong hopes and dreams for you and all of your siblings. I would like the listeners to hear a little bit about the influence of your dad and where he came from and where he wanted you all to go.
1: David, there's only one set of quarters in the Washington-Johnson County area, and we all are related. Uh, My cousins were educators, uh, principal, teachers, uh, and they all taught me. And my dad happened to come from the poor quarter side. My dad was a first grade dropout to ply muse for a quarter a day uh, as a first grader. And he was raised by his father, and mother, uh, his father died at a very young age. And so and he had two brothers and a sister. And so because of, of having to uh ply muse for a quarter a day as a first grader, David, he never learned to read, but he's very, very brilliant. And he wanted for us to better than he had for himself. So for him, then uh, education was the equalizer that he didn't get. But for us, then he decided, you know, that he would push us to excel, not just get by. For well, example, David on report card days, my dad weighed about 300 pounds. His boy was twice as heavy as mine. You know what? Uh, you know command uh, Commanded respect. He come in on report card days, and boy, let me see that report card. He look at it and say, "What's that B doing there?" My mind is like, "Well, man, that's pretty good." I didn't say it because you didn't talk about to your daddy, but the message was, David, if you are an A student in this household, a B is not good enough because he knew that coming up as a black male in poverty during his era. There were challenges that he had faced, and I was going to face. Uh, and he knew that if I was to rise above my present living environment, then I couldn't excel by being mediocre, just getting by. I had to go beyond what others were doing to rise out of that uh, current situation. And at times, David, it came across as harsh at times, but I tell you, those demanding. Words and those challenges, you know, from he, and my mother pushed us all because I wasn't born to the corner side that was educated, but he knew what was in us, building wise and capability wise. He saw living in poverty as changeable, temporary, and education was a way out of poverty for us. And he had not gotten out, but he determined that if we would all get out of there, out of poverty and surpass what he did
0: uh, in his life. It sounds like your parents, your dad especially, really did instill in you the concept that you mentioned in your book, which is teaching to the souls of children. Right. That's really something that you hold dear and and right. it's about the person's worth and their potential. Talk about the teaching to the souls of children for a second.
1: Well, David, about soul, I talk about a person's, you know, thoughts, their will, and their emotions, and you know, my belief is that you cannot reach children or others that you can't succeed in life if your soul matters are not in alignment with your with your goals. Uh, from my dad's and mother's standpoint them being raised, you know, and, and born in the uh, late 20s and having gone through so many things, my thoughts about myself had to be that, you know, you are capable, uh, you can be successful. And then the real part of it, having a desire to succeed, once I caught hold of that dream for, for myself, I had to persist, you know, because, being educated or living in a situation where it was not always easy, but my will had to come in alignment with, you know, my desire to succeed and, and just to, to realize the whole thing about you work hard now for success and other things down the, down the road. And then the key thing, David, was this whole thing about persistence. My grandmother and mother had a saying about railroad tracks, say the bottom rail, come to the top one day, and the meaning was that the oppressed and downtrodden, if they were persistent and kept their faith and trusted God and, and continued to uh, to work hard, then you rise above where you were, were initially. And the whole thing about it, David, was uh, about the soul, the domain, that's what, what drives us, because what I have learned is that if you don't convince a person that they are capable and can do had your support to do, no matter the ability, no matter the talent, they remain in that position of just being mediocre and just just getting by or doing nothing. So the soul, soul matters are the most important, I believe, of lives being being changed.
0: That concept of persistence, I'm sure, feeds in very strongly to your ability to overcome the, the chronic stuttering that you talk about in the book and Right. Your response to some moments of racism and totally unjustified treatment by other people for the wrong reasons. I'm curious what you would share with listeners about the similarities, maybe, of overcoming both of those things or dealing with both of those things.
1: David, I was born a chronic stutterer. And, um, you know, with that, I had issues with gross and fine motor skills. In first grade, uh, I could not skip. With nine boys in the family, that was a team. And so we had we had we had goals at the house. And so our y'all was the place where everybody came and played uh, sports on the weekends, you know, but I stood David most times on the sidelines because I was so uncoordinated my gross motor skills until about 10th grade. And so, the stuttering uh, maybe be a quiet person from the uh, communication standpoint, but also from the other standpoint that uh, it put me on the sidelines when everybody else was was engaged, you know, uh, in the uh, in the game. And for, for many years, David, I allowed that to, uh, in my mind, determine my my value and my worth, you know, my parents and family saw me as no different. And yes, I was He's at home, and I was teaching at school as well, and I internalized that for a point in time, but here I was, David, uh young, black, gifted male, but I quickly learned the power of words. Uh, I learned to read at, at an early age, and, and as, as I read many books, I can remember reading a novel about uh, Hank Aaron and many, many others, I began to and see myself, you know, uh, as I was capable of being. But uh, but beyond being quiet, I was shy and reserved, and people would think because you don't talk well that you're dumb or you're stupid, you know, when you're not. But those struggles, David, taught me persistence. Uh, I was a former chronic stutterer. We all have shortfalls. We all stammer at times. I said former stutterer. uh, And so, I didn't own the uh, title of stutterer. I don't anymore. (music) On the issues of race, uh, my philosophy, David, is and was this. Who owns the problem? I don't. The other person does. But because I went through the rejection of being a stutterer and not having those fine and gross motor skills and being, you know, you know, and, and being called sorry, you know, and, and doofus and those and those things, uh, I didn't let those that had views about race define me. It was hurtful at times, but my prior struggles made me made me say. That's your problem, not mine, and you can't define me. And I believe still that the average person, if you are hardworking and honorable, respect you as as you are. And and I I never uh, identified or put everybody in one category. I believe, David, still believe that you have good and bad people, you know, and I chose to believe in that most people are are good, but those struggles, David, uh, you know, is what framed my approach to my, my life as a person, as an educator, as an administrator. And that persistence was necessary to survive, you know, coming up, I utilized the, the issues that I face, you know, as, as an adult as well.
0: Sounds like all of that, Hayward, feeds into the whole damaged goods idea that you coined for your book title. Right and overcoming that and changing. At some point, there was a pivot point where you shifted pretty drastically, apparently, your perspective on no longer damaged goods and fully realizing that potential that people had been supporting the whole time. So I know where the story came from, why you came up with the title, but it's a great one. And it really connects to this notion of viewing yourself and others with the right kind of potential and who owns the problem that you just mentioned. So if you could talk about the damaged goods concept, that would be great. Right,
1: David, we were a poor family and live in a small town. And we go to the town on Saturdays, Uh, had a little mom and pop store there in Riceville. It's torn down now. It was an outlet grocery store. The owners, uh, he was a butcher as well. And David, he would save for my mother and father, like the older meats in a box. But they would buy those at a discount. And and they would buy the uh canned goods. And those things, David, gave us assistance and kept us fed, but be there in the store there with them those Saturdays. I would look and see other people in the aisles, David. They were buying these perfectly round, shiny cans, you know, and Damaged Goods came out of of that image, because when I saw that Denny Can, it reminded me of what I felt about myself. Because I saw uh, everybody else, you included, as being perfect, and me, imperfect. But what I learned over time was this, the shiny cans that the other person was buying off the shelf in a dented can that I, my parents, were buying at a discount. They looked differently, had a different shape, but inside the can was the same level of quality and the same taste and the same worth was in the can. It was a matter of how it was valued by the person who held the, the can. And so, I realized that I held my view of me in my in my own hands. I had to decide whether and realize that hey, you may be poor, you may be a stutterer, but you are gifted, talented, you are bright, and you're not damaged. Uh, you know, and, and David, at that point in time, then I began to uh, my soul bought into that, and my life changed because of that.
0: Well, instead of calling you Hayward for this next prompt, I'm going to call you Diddy Wah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, so you can sing if you want to, but don't ask me to. But I'd like you to tell everybody, because I think this is a perfect time to mention Diddy Wah, where that came from and uh, what's wrapped up in Diddy Wah.
1: Well, David, that was a song. And I'll sing, sing a, little, a little stanza of it from in the 60s. I was do wa do wa do did diddy talking about the boy from New York City. And that was the song. And so my dad and mother always said that I uh had the mindset of being a rich boy and not a not a poor boy. I always desired, you know, uh success and nice things that based upon my zip code and where I was raised at, that we really could not afford. So, uh, so daddy called me Diddy Wah, short for uh, Do Wah. And in some ways, David, it was kind of in a, an affront because it was kind of saying, uh, you know, that you're kind of a, a high-minded poor boy. But for me, David, every time that I, that I heard that, it affirmed in me what my dreams were what life of me could be what life of me would be so, so that reminded me you know uh yeah right uh you dream big you think big and uh and, and so david that's where it came from because of my my high ideals about about <laughs> about life you know that new york city boy and here i am in the country of johnson county but i just you know relish, you know uh the best things that life has to offer, you know.
0: (laughs) I had to get that story in there somewhere and you really led into it perfectly. We've talked about your dad a lot. You've mentioned your mom. There's also your grandmother and somebody named Dr. Mays. Spend a little time and talk about those three people and share whatever you want about their influence on you or what they taught you or just the lessons you learned that you were able to pass on to students and colleagues from those three folks.
1: Right. My grandmother first... Grandmother Carrie, Lily, and being in a house of 15 children, mama, daddy, grandmama Carrie, and many in a three bedroom house. Uh, my grandmother Carrie was uh, like a mother to me as well. And David, with that setup until I was about maybe 10 years old, I slept with her, I because we had a small house. Uh, but the grandmama Carrie, I was a boy. She was kind of a recluse. They're going somewhere. a question was, well, is is boy going? no, he's not going, mama. I'm staying home then. you know, so out of fifteen children, you know, Grandma McCary made me, you know feel uh, special amongst those uh 15. so when with the other ones who didn't have any issues and I did, she uh, understood that and kind of just to me beyond the uh, normal things. so because of that, you know, I, I was always boy. I was boy, which was the term term of, of, of endearment. But David, but she was raised during the uh, Depression. And so when she knew about lack and about her family, and she was my mother's supporter. My mother was married twice. My mother's first husband left her with eight children, one six months old. My grandmother was there for for my mother all during, you know, that time, and lived with us until she passed in nineteen seventy-eight. So my grandmother, she just epitomized, uh, you know, this uh, working and this fighting uh, spirit, and was a bastion of of hope. Made me feel special, special uh, amongst the crowd of children there in the uh, household. And my mother now was my my heart she passed in 2016 and uh we were very close you know david and and my mother uh where i really modeled um you know the never giving up persistence and and knowing what made you you because her being raised and her marrying at early age and having eight kids uh, at the time, she was frowned upon by other family members. And uh, she told the story to me, uh, you know, many years ago, and with her having been abandoned by her first husband with with eight children, and the youngest child being six months old, she sought for the first time some assistance and was told by DFACS, uh, you got these kids, they can work, and my kids are going to school, and so mom made sure that they went to school. The older siblings uh, work in the fields twice during the week and go to school the other day during the week. And then she married my father later on and had three more children. Uh, and so it's a mom's ability to uh, persist uh, and be independent and not begging for help, but to be self sufficient is what drove uh, me and my work ethics. You know, but just her love, you know, and with her as grandmother, I was always her little boy, little boy. And, and, and so, uh, so David, my mother and I have a very similar personalities. Her persistence and her love to love all 15 kids with a special love is what inspired me in my, in my career. You know, and also to be balanced. You know, out of those nine boys, she made us learn how to wash clothes, how to cook ride iron an and sew, and then go outside and, you know, work on a car. So she taught me uh, to be a very, very balanced person. But the main thing she taught me was uh, was this, that being somebody is not based upon what you have, but based upon what's in your heart. And I got amazed, David, to me, his message was the whole thing about having a dream, having a vision. And so he inspired me as an educator, you know, just because you know that he so postulated to others, you know, the idea of always having goals and always having a mission, having high goals set. I would have kids in, in school, and I always told my kids that had a small goal and a little basketball. I would tell the child, I said, "Here, shooting this goal." They shoot, and then I turn around. I'd say, I said, "Shoot!" So I can't. I can't. I said, "Why?" They said, "Well." ain't no goal. That's that's a lie. Without a, without a goal in life being, you, you can't score.
0: Your voice trailed away for a second there because you had your back to us, which is what you did with the kid. You would say, try to shoot the goal now, and there's no way for them to get to the front side where you had the goal made with your arms. Great analogy there.
1: So my mother, you know, taught me those things as a child. Uh, Dr. Mays also kind of and to that ideology about goal setting and setting high goals and about never being happy with just uh, existing, but always wanting to excel.
0: And I'm actually going to read something now. These are excerpts taken from the dedication, forward, and back cover of your book. First, your words. Quote, I was thinking of you when I wrote the story of my life, highlighting my many struggles fears, and successes. People have differing obstacles to overcome, but we all share one thing. We all struggle with life and need encouragement. This is a story of my life from a child of poverty to becoming a teacher and administrator. I wrote this book, not to glorify me, but to tell the story of what can be achieved. If we have faith, hope for better and do our part to positively impact our life situation, end quote. And then, Some words from the late Dr. Allie McGill, who wrote the foreword to your book. She wrote, Dr. Cordy understands that students must be respected and valued and given the opportunity to learn and be successful. A story of a genuinely outstanding person who came to know his capabilities and didn't let the hurtful words or actions reflected in the insecurities of others define him, end quote. So reflecting on those words, is there any other idea that that generates that you'd like to share?
1: Well, David, um, I began mentoring others in my teen years, even in high school and during college. And as a teacher and a personal superintendent, you know, I've continued to uh, to do that. And David, you know, my goal was to be for others in their lives, what i missed in my life uh, coming up. You know, because I struggle with uh, self-esteem, poverty, rejection, then David, who better to reach those that are like-minded, than this one who has um, uh, been there. And it's about change lives. And as an educator, my goal was and continues to to be kids to to realize and adults to realize that uh, I didn't choose my location where I was born or my family, but I can choose my destiny from that point forward. And David, I believe with all of my heart uh, uh, that um, ability, test results, standards, those things don't matter until we reach the hearts of of people, because uh, for me to, to excel, I didn't believe that I, that I could. And my teacher in first grade, Ms. Evelyn Williams and David, she looked beyond me being this chronic stutterer to, to the smart boy who's gifted, you know, and it, it began with that. And so I've been wanting to give back to others what was given to me. One thing come to mind, I have a former student that I worked with in an alternative school setting in the uh, middle 90s, and we lost touch until about 2007. Uh, and in fact, he wrote a book you know, last year about his life, and it was titled, It's How You Win. His name is Troy Taylor. I was a principal in an alternative setting and had it for two years, and at the time that uh I'd had him, David, and it's publicized. He had attempted suicide three times prior to coming to me. And he mentioned in his book, he mentioned in conversations about in my office one day, I had lunch and I gave him some of my french fries. And that moment, you know, showed that he was valued. David, since that time, he has now just finished up this last few months in the health clinic in the Atlanta area. But he attributes that time with him to saving his life. And um, he came from, from uh, abject poverty, from a household where they uh, had a parent that was was, was drug addicted. And David, and to him, you know, I become dad at the end, still dad. And so that, that's what it's about, changing lives. You know, it's not about me. It's about, uh, you know, us living through others by giving of ourselves. It'd be a transparent as well.
0: And sometimes that is just a word that you're not really aware of the potential impact that it might have. I remember a story from your book about a young man in the hall that you passed by, he was, had been placed outside of the room for one reason or another. And you said something to him and that came back years later, if I'm not mistaken, share that story with us too.
1: Right. Yes. And in fact, David, uh, that was original. We're close now. Uh, you know, he and his brother, I have six godsons that call me Dad still and he's one of those. Uh Reginald came from a very impoverished family. Uh he was the middle brother of three brothers and one sister. He was in the hallway and rather than fuss at him. I asked why are you in the hallway he, he told me, and I knew him and I knew about his uh older brother, younger brother, younger sister. You can't learn anything in the hallway. You need to be in the classroom. Uh, but about how how that, he could better his family in himself and have his siblings see a good role model if he would, uh, you know, give his best behavior and academics in the classroom. And I could have fussed Adam, but but I took that kind of approach, you know, to try and uh, coach him in that little short period of time and I uh, so David, and that changed uh, his uh, his life now. He, he's a contractor, has his own business, and is doing well, and we're still talking, They still come to see me in Wrightsville still now.
0: You've mentioned your first grade teacher, family members, Dr. Mays as an inspiration. Is there another teacher or two that you want to mention and explain why they were so wonderful or so influential?
1: Yes, sir, there's one. Miss Nadine Hunt, she taught business ed, the high school there. I took one year, one semester or other, uh, a class in business math. And she's still living. And David, she always stood out because uh, she was tall, always best classy. But David, out those days now, she always drove what we called an L-Dog. That's the Cadillac Dorado. She parked between the open corridors, part of the cars there. And Miss Hunt always kept her a new El Dorado, we call him the L-Dog, and she was always articulate. And she was just about about life, you know, about success. And so she modeled what Diddy Wall dreamed.
0: Right. This is a great conversation and we could probably talk for hours. Is there anything else you wanna share with us?
1: Um, David, just to say that life is not perfect, but life is worth living, you know, And in these times we're living in right now with all the uncertainty that's surrounding us, you know, we can't let the fear of being hurt, being let down, stop us from from caring about people. And in the end, what matters is being somebody. It's not based upon uh, the car you drive, what you wear, how you live in. It's based upon others, to become hope for those that are hopeless. And to say to everybody that we live in a time now that we can't we can't blame being born poor, being born black, being born handicapped on being a failure, because I was born poor, I'm still black, and I was born a chronic stutterer, but uh, you know I chose to make life better for myself. It wasn't easy, but it is possible. And the question has to be, how bad do you want to uh, make life better for yourself and for for others? Life is to be lived. We have a choice there. We either strive for the best or just get by. And David, you know, uh, being born poor stutterer Uh, But David, I'm not a victim, I'm a victor in life.
0: Thank you, Hayward, for taking time to share this story, these stories, and especially with the emphasis on attitude, the heart of gratitude, and the heart of sharing and caring about other people. It's a message for not only all educators, but for all people, so I truly appreciate it. Thank you very much, and have a great day.
1: Thanks, Dave, thank you, I've enjoyed it, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening today. Find the Lead, Learn, Change podcast on your search engine, iTunes, or other listening app. Leave a rating, write a review, subscribe, and share with others. In the meantime, go lead. Go learn. Go make a change. Go.